We are entering a new age, an age demanding greater collaboration, enhanced creativity, heightened agility. Welcome to Agile and Beyond, a podcast for agile enthusiasts, design thinkers, team builders, and organization designers. With practitioners and thinkers, we explore the future of work, the evolutions in leadership mindset, and the revolutions in the human-centered innovation around experience and purpose. In episode three of a four-part conversation with Erica Lenz, Scrum Master and former poet, evolutionary biologist, and tutor, we discuss where management happens on a self-organized team, accountability, good leadership, team empowerment, aligning the team and the organization to the consumer, observation, clearly stated goals, a clear, compelling vision, Dual track scrum, the magic of bringing the customer into the room, team motivation, identifying motivators, demotivators, nasty politics, the surfacing of dysfunction, and dealing with bullies. Which then comes down to the whole concept of where does man in a self-organized team, we're just talking about a scrum team right here in, in this context. If we're talking about a scrum team, it's self-organized. So where does management of the team occur in, in, in that context? Yeah, so I think the term self-organized is misused all the time. And I've seen teams use it as a way of avoiding accountability, which I think is fascinating. Um, now, now I'm on the edge of my seat. Yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> oh, awesome. Um, the team is self-organized around a goal. So I think you have to use the whole phrase. Um, the team, it, teams sometimes, and so these are immature teams, um, will sometimes take self-organizing to mean that they can do whatever they want, um, including sometimes that they can... Uh, spend a good portion of their sprint drinking beer at their desk and playing ping pong. I, I've witnessed this personally, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't I don't think this is unusual. Um, and I think that a lot of organizations struggle to hold on to good developers. So they, you know, we have these fancy kitchen, kitchens with free food and catered meals. We have ping pong tables and, and um, <laughs> big areas of the office that are set up for cornhole or dance dance revolution. Um, I have no idea what cornhole is. Uh, <laughs> you, you throw a, a bean bag to a platform that has a hole in it. It's a, okay. it's a game. Alright. Um, and I don't think that those are about intrinsic motivation. Those activities are about intrinsic motivation and making the work interesting and compelling. It sounds like intrinsic distraction. Yeah. And so, um, well, I do think that knowledge workers need to do things other than work in order to reset their brains and that these are valid activities in the office. I 
don't think that they should be the primary activities in an office. And, um, and I think that immature teams will sometimes think that self-organization means that if something's uncomfortable, they're just going to go do something else for a little while, like go play ping pong. Um, so I think it's important to make sure that when you're talking about self-organization that you are including the idea that you're self-organizing around a goal and that there are a set of clearly stated expectations about what needs to happen. So this is just good leadership. This is something I learned decades ago um, when I ran my first team, that the way to get the most out of a team is to give them a, a set of expectations that are clear, that they understand, that they agree to, and then to empower them to meet those expectations. So you clear stuff that's in their way. Um, and I, I was doing this in, how old am I? So I was, do, I was doing this in, in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So way before I encountered Agile, way before, well, no, about the same time as the, um, the Agile Manifesto was probably being built, um, maybe not ready for prime time, but this is just good leadership. And so if, if you're throwing a team out there um, to do work, whether it's in Scrum or Kanban or a non-Agile context, you're going to have greater success if you um, give people a sense of purpose. And that's what the, the goal is about. So there's a lot of management there. It may not be management in the way that the word is often used, but, but when you're thinking about people as a system, you need to manage expectations. And... Um, and you need to set standards. And so you can set standards at a very high level and then empower the team to set their own standards about how they're going to reach those goals. So this is where a good um, servant leader, facilitator can um, help that process and help the team understand that um, self-organization is actually something that means that they're carrying a whole lot of responsibility on their shoulders to meet those expectations. And if you do that right, and you do it in a way that the team buys into it, then you get a team that's super motivated and super excited about being able to um, meet these goals in a way that feels good to them. So they're in control of how they work. Maybe not what they work on, but how they work. And they are working for a company that's producing a particular product or set of products. And hopefully the, the purpose of the company is creating a product or service in line with the mission of the company. And mm-hmm. hopefully this mission is in alignment, that, that the team is working on a project toward this purpose and they are in alignment and their values and their their goals in life are aligned with the company's goals. This is a lot. These are a lot of ifs. Yeah. Um, how so, do you rectify those or align those if possible? Well, so I would, I would argue that you don't want a team that's aligned with a company's mi- mission. 
You want a team that's aligned with what the consumer wants um, and that the company is also in aligned with what the consumer wants. And so this is where the idea of um, having frequent feedback from the customer is so important because all of these other functions, um, teams organizing around a goal, um, planning at the organizational level, um, motivating um, portfolio planning around customer needs means that um, they are more likely to want to become agile because um, they want that frequent feedback from the customer who's, who may change his or her mind at any given moment. So um, agile makes more sense in that context. And um, having that customer feedback filter down to the teams where developers who um, are actually doing the work can benefit from that feedback is also important. So once, once you get a company at least agreeing that yes, we want, we want that frequent feedback, all the other frameworks start to make sense and, and maybe fall into place. I ha that said, I haven't worked um, at an agile transformation level. I have worked at companies where there was an agile transformation going on, but I think um, I probably shouldn't speak to all of the pressures and and complexities at the portfolio level. I think I would be making some of it up. So. <laughs> and these are you've yeah. worked in organizations that are um, running a, a safe framework, the scale agile framework, or yeah, starting to. Um, I wouldn't say that either of the companies I've worked with that have done that were doing it at a mature level, but they were experimenting with it um, and doing big room planning, PI planning, and um, and using some of the techniques for portfolio planning that come out of SAFE. But I'm not very conversant in it. So uh, you have a team. They're have spent, two. Yeah. You have two teams. Yeah. Let's, hypothetical. Oh, okay. This is a hypothetical. You have, uh, one of your teams is spending 50% of their time getting high scores on cornhole and uh, dancing nation or whatever that was called <laughs> I sound like an old guy dance right? dance revolution dance dance yes. revolution it's an old game you it's should know old this game. old guy yeah <laughs> I, I'm not a big game player clearly um, how do you how do you make how do you motivate them? How do you motivate them to do to do the work? So you start by observing what's happening, right? I assume that if there is behavior happening, that there is a reason it's happening. Um, so I would start, before I ever talked to the team, looking at whether they had a clearly stated set of goals is the product owner coming in and providing a clear clear and compelling vision to the team that is part of the responsibility of that role and if the product owner is unable to do that I would ask why um, maybe there are multiple layers in the product organization uh, hierarchical layers and maybe 
the person at the top has a clear and compelling vision, but it's not filtering through those layers in some way. Or maybe the work is being broken up in a way that it's um, more about building individual components rather than delivering customer value. So again, keeping that focus on delivering business value to the customer um, keeps that goal compelling and interesting because then the developer can have this at least hopefully they're interacting directly with a customer or at least a compelling proxy of the customer but if not at least they can have a story in their mind I'm building this for this person um, and I want to make it good because I'm building it for this person um, if they're just um, building a, a service layer of something that's going to be interacting with um, some non-human entity in some way, it may be a less compelling story. For some people, that's a very compelling story, <laughs> but, um, but for some people, it may not be. Um, so I would be looking at whether they had um, something inspiring to be working on. That's it's interesting approach. So you would the the, the tradition. If you guys don't get in get in there and start building this now, you're all fired. You know that that's that doesn't work. They walk. They they will walk. And they'll yeah. have they'll have another job inside of a week. Yeah. So you can't. You have to make a more compelling uh, target for them. Yeah. As opposed to trying to get the the beanbag in the in the cornhole. Right. And and actually, I really appreciate the challenge of trying to motivate people who can walk at any moment. Um, I, I, I think that some of the um, command and control and even edging into bullying behavior mm. that, um, that we have seen in more traditional organizations um, is, is driven to some extent by the idea that, that people, are, people need to be there, that people have to have that job, and so it gives you some leverage to manipulate them. Mm. So they're basically slaves of some sort, wage slaves of some sort. Yeah, or at least they're they're dependent, and they're it takes a lot of effort to find another job, and mm. and they have a mortgage that they need to pay, and um, even if they're highly skilled and make a good salary, if if the market's not hot, mm-hmm. um, they may put up with with not being treated well because there's a regular paycheck coming in the door. I think it's exciting that that's not the case. Now, I think it creates some other weird stuff. Um, but but I think I think that the the challenge of needing to get people to really want to work at your company is a fun challenge. This this brings up an interesting idea. Uh, have you ever considered or have you ever done have you ever done this yourself? going to a team that seems unmotivated and asking them what would you, what would inspire you to build for the client and to mm-hmm. actually have to, to set up a meeting perhaps with the team and the and the stakeholders or the customer to, to, to have a conversation about what they want and for them to get excited about satisfying an actual customer that they know Mm -hmm. whose name is Fred or Sally or something. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so that would be my next step. I mean, I just didn't talk about the next step uh, when we were talking about this before. I 
absolutely the next step is to go to the team and talk to them about what they want. And ideally, you would have your product people in the room, the people who can solve the problem in the room with the development team and have them have a conversation around it. There are frameworks that enable this kind of thing, like Dual Track Scrum is the first one that comes to mind, where you have um, essentially a, a framework within a framework. So you have a discovery track um, around the Scrum track, and you have a developer, um, a UX person, and maybe other people who collaborate with the product owner to um, to participate in the product discovery process, which, if it's done well, is going to involve um, usability testing and um, various other sorts of techniques that uh, that allow people to collaborate directly directly with the customer. So I would explore those kinds of things with the team, including the product owner. Um, but again, there, there's so far in my career, I've run into a lot of resistance around having direct contact between the development team and the customer. Um, sometimes it's logistically impossible because the customer is way off in another state and the customer is another business. So they can't they can't attend demos or sprint reviews every couple of weeks. Um, and they're busy. So they can't be having a kind of ad hoc conversation with a developer who has a question. So that's why you have the PO working as a proxy. Um, but there are plenty of examples of teams going out into the field and um, developing some product on the fly while they're interacting with customers. Um, trying to remember what the company was. There's a video that I've seen about... We may be thinking of the same thing. Yeah. They, Are we talking about the Nordstrom yes, sunglass yeah. uh, so that's, app you know, or something? Yeah, it's a very simple app that they're developing, so it, this wouldn't work for a more complicated product, maybe, but but that rapid feedback loop, that very short feedback loop, allowed them to create pretty cool stuff. Um, so I'm lost now. Where were we? <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Guess what you're talking about. How, how do we, how, how does the, what are methods where the team can get oh, constant direct feedback from a, a customer, I guess? Well, and, and back to the original question, which was how do you motivate a team? Mm -hmm. So um, if, you can't, if you can't bring a customer into the room, which I think is you know, magic when you can get that connection, um, then you need to find some way to tell that story in a way that's compelling to the developers. And you need to encourage the developers to ask for that story if they don't have it. So that's where I would start with motivating a team. I mean, you can also come at it from a direction of having one-on-ones with them and building trust with them and um, getting them to talk about what their frustrations are and what they feel like is in the way. 
Um, you can certainly bring that kind of thing up in a retro and uh, have them, uh, there are exercises that I just played, um, I just played with some cards recently that uh, were 10 intrinsic motivators. So you can bring a, essentially a game to the team and say, okay, here are these intrinsic motivators, line them up, um, and we're going to play a game with them. And then you give them different scenarios. You know, if, if you were working on a project alone, what would, um, what would motivate you? And then if you're working on a team and your team has this goal, what would motivate you? If you were pair programming, what would motivate you? And so you get the team thinking about what their own motivators are. And if they're working on it together, then they can, um, they can then look at other people's motivators and start to see the interpersonal complexity on their own team. And then they can start working in that world and working more effectively with each other. So there are a lot of ways to play with how to motivate a team. Um, and I think it's important to take into consideration what the demotivators are. I mean, I have worked in a company where a lot of the lack of motivation was because there were a lot of nasty politics happening ar around the team all the time. So in that kind of circumstance, I think it's very difficult for a scrum master or a coach to make any sort of real significant difference. And I think, I don't know, I, I guess my take on it is that people should just move on to another company and give the company that's dysfunctional a, a lot of uh, constructive feedback by walking out. <laughs> well, it's interesting you brought up politics because there was, a, there was a question I had earlier, and I can't remember what we were talking about, but I was, I was wondering if you felt, do you think Agile is a, a depoliticizing pattern, or does it have its own you know, a traditional uh, hierarchical structure or plan-driven approach versus an agile iterative approach, do they both have politics that just expressed in very different ways? Or? Yeah. I think it's a good question. Um, I think that politics come from a different place than frameworks for managing workflow come from. So I think that what Agile does, by definition, is it surfaces problems quickly. And if there are pre-existing politics, then it's going to make it worse. I don't think that Agile fixes nasty politics. I think it makes them more visible. And so it can be... Um, it can make things more difficult in the short term. So to make the resistance to it, if there is an underlying festering uh, political issue or politics mm -hmm. at, at some level, there will be ferocious kickback at, yeah. at some point if there's... Uh... So let's, let's just take a hypothetical example. Let's say that um, you have a delivery team that's dependent on um, a, an op operations team 
for pushing to production. And there's something wrong there. And the, uh, the manager of the operations team, and I use the word manager intentionally, um, is a bully and doesn't take feedback well. Um, if you implement Scrum on the delivery team, it's going to become very rapidly apparent that there's some sort of uh, systemic impediment to pushing to production. And what Scrum asks is that that impediment be removed. <laughs> and it's Mr. Manager. <laughs> so, so that means at a minimum that the Scrum Master goes talk with the operations team and try to remove that impediment. So the Scrum Master in that context is in the position of trying to figure out how to do that. Do they go around the manager? Do they go directly to the manager? Um, I would actually prefer as a Scrum Master that someone on the delivery team remove their own impediment if they can because there's learning involved in that and there's relationship building involved in that. Um, in the scenario I've described, I would not ask them to do that because it would um, completely distract them from their work. But in a healthy environment, I would ask them to do that because I think those conversations are hugely valuable. In a personal growth uh, yeah. factor, all kinds of things. All right? the good stuff. But it's also a good way to lose your job if that, uh, if that, if that operations manager yeah. is far more connected than you are as a, as a junior just hired uh, right. engineer. Right. So... Agile's not going to fix that. Scrum's not going to fix that. Kanban's not going to fix that. Um, it, it is going to make it worse. Will the superorganism fix that? Will your will your background in psychology and <laughs> and uh, and evolutionary biology give you oh. the tools to uh, approach those kind of problems? I have a set of techniques I use for dealing with bullies, but it doesn't. It's mostly about containing them rather than fixing them. You can't, can't change people unless they want to be changed. I, I have a friend, he says his way of dealing with bullies is that they're usually cowards and the only way that you can actually deal with them is you actually have to be more powerful than they are and put them mm -hmm. in your, their, their place and then they just scurry away. Mm -hmm. it, that's, a, that's one option, yeah. If you don't actually possess positional power, that can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. But um, you can do it sometimes just through body language and tone of voice and all of that. But if they have positional power, that, that can be difficult. And, but, but that tells you something about how the organization um, hires and assesses the performance of people. If they're allowing a bully to run rampant, then uh, there are larger problems around culture. Right. Yeah. This completes episode three of a four-part conversation with Erica Lenz. In the final episode, we cover what makes Erica interesting. Comfort with creativity, mental illness and the arts, grounding others in difficult situations, the power of divergent thinking, building bridges, social dancing, choreography and floor craft, helping others to pivot in order to change the behavior of a team experiments, adding emotion in tech environments, the power in valuing everyone.
and kinesthetic intelligence. You can connect with Erica, that's with a K, L-E-N-Z, Lens, on LinkedIn. agileandbeyond.co and subscribe on iTunes. Until next time, keep evolving.